you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 13. Hebrews, chapter 13. We'll look together at verses 7 and following. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse number 7. We have pointed out consistently, as has the book of Hebrews, that the key practical theme here is perseverance. It's not only that we repent of our sin and believe at the beginning of our journey with Jesus it is that the Christian life is one of repentance and faith. Every day of our walk with Jesus, we are repenting of our sin and believing the promises of the gospel in order to persevere. Every breath that we take as the people of God is a breath breathed in repentance and faith. Now, by personal experience and in the observation of the experiences of others, Many who do not persevere, who quit, who give up, who leave a church or leave the church or defect the faith altogether. In many of those cases, in fact, a majority in my experience is driven by one of two factors. Either the presence of suffering that's just too much for them to bear with or to understand within the context of the gospel or some type of friction, tension, disappointment, or the failure of leadership in a church experience that they've had. And here in the closing exhortation of the book of Hebrews, both leadership issues and suffering are addressed in a way that really touches the nerve and the tendency of mankind when the pressure comes. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 7. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 7, the Bible says, Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be established by grace and not by foods, since those involved in them have not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace, for we don't have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share. For God is pleased with such sacrifices. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So that they can do this with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we're convinced that we have a clear conscience wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. And I especially urge you to pray that I may be restored to you very soon. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Our passage begins this way. Remember your leaders who've spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. 
Let me tell you first what verse 7 does not say. Verse 7 does not say, your leaders have it all together, and their life is a pristine example you should follow after in every respect. That is not what verse 7 says. Listen carefully again. Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. What might have been the outcome of their lives? Notice the way the sentence itself is structured. As you observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Well, we know from our study in the book of Hebrews that in many cases, the outcome of their faith was persecution. The outcome of their faith was suffering. The outcome of their faith was often embarrassment in the public square. The outcome of their faith were the very types of hardship that they themselves as congregants were dealing with. I think verse 7 is to some extent a call to pastors to be transparent, to be open about their hardships, about the difficulties that they endure. One of the beautiful things about being a pastor, about being a shepherd, is that you are with and among the sheep. This is essential to the nature of pastoral ministry. Being among, being with the sheep means that you have the same level of exposure to the dangers and the difficulties as the sheep. You are with them. You are among them. Now, sometimes as pastors, we like to put forward this picture of having it all together. Things may happen, but we just sort of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we press on. We just persevere and we've got it all neatly packaged and together. And it can create the illusion that the experience of the pastor is a different experience than that of those perhaps under his charge. But brothers and sisters, nothing could be further from the truth. Again, one of the beautiful things about shepherding the sheep of God is, the, is that you enjoy together within your community the same level of exposure to perils, to dangers, and to difficulties as the people under your care. We can make light at times, and rightly so, of, of the gulf that exists between the experience of Christian folk in the Western context and those who are suffering gravely for their faith. The distinction between those two experiences should not be blurred or minimized. But at the same time, regardless of your context, the experience of the pastor should always be like unto the experiences of those under his charge. What you're wrestling with, what you're dealing with, what you're bearing with as a Christian, we as your pastors are likewise bearing with, even as we seek to lead under the headship of Jesus over all things. Sometimes pastoral ministry, even in our context, can be a quite difficult thing. I've spent the, the past several days, this past week was our state convention meeting, and so spent several days with brother pastors from all over the state of Mississippi, and we do what everyone else does. When you get together, you talk, right? Sometimes you talk more than you should, but we talk when we get together. Just a few examples of, of, of some of the kinds of suffering and hardship experienced within pastoral ministry that I think it helps the church to be sensitive to. Anonymous pastor as example number one. Nothing like making a bereavement visit and the new widow spending an hour telling you how you're doing everything wrong. Many of the complaints from way before I was pastor just kept telling myself, smile and be gracious. Anonymous pastor example number two. Last week I went to see a couple at their home. He's in his last days. 
while walking down their driveway, they closed and locked the door. Apparently, I'm the reason no churches in our city are growing. Anonymous pastor example number three. It only took me two months to start getting anonymous letters about how I'm the worst pastor in the history of the church, mostly because I moved the announcements to the end of the service. <laughs> also, it's my fault people died of COVID last year when I wasn't even their pastor. Anonymous pastor example number four. I watched my son fold his hands, lay down quietly, and die. We were soon excited to learn that my wife was pregnant again, only to learn days later she had breast cancer. Worse yet, her pregnancy is feeding the cancer. And I'm supposed to love and lead these people. I don't, I don't say that to sort of generate sympathy for the office of pastor. I, I say that to point out the similarity that exists between those four anonymous pastors and the very pastors the preacher points to in verse number seven. They all have something in common. And tracing this common denominator is central to observing what God requires of us in this verse. Do you know what they all share in common? They didn't quit. The outcome of their lives was suffering. Their faith persevered. And the call of God is to imitate that. Brothers and sisters, persevere. Look to those around you who are suffering well and follow after, imitate their faith. Suffer after the example of your leaders. For some, especially in the first century context, the outcome of their faith was persecution and death. Yet these men persevered. Now look to verse number eight. This is a verse we know well, right? This may be the best known verse in the book of Hebrews. But consider how it's positioned here in chapter 3. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you don't stop and just reflect on the context here and the agenda of the preacher, it really makes no sense. It's a description of this attribute of God's character, which is in and of itself a marvelous thing. It's one of the characteristic attributes that endears Jesus to me most. It's one of the things that God drew my heart with the, the most powerfully early in my journey with Jesus. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever in him. There's no change, no variation, no shadow of turning. He's the stable force in my life. When God saved me out of a context of chaos and confusion, a world that was topsy-turvy, Jesus was a stable force in my life. I know that when I wake up tomorrow, Jesus will be the same for me there as he was on yesterday and he is at the present hour today. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we cite that and we celebrate that as though this is just a theological concept. But this is not intended to build some abstract theological concept. In fact, the implications of what are stated here are entirely practical. Within a context of suffering, the preacher says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As though to say Jesus is not going to change in order to accommodate your discomfort. And Jesus is not going to change in order to accommodate your sinfulness. Now think about this this way. If we're suffering for our faith in Jesus, sort of the human tendency is to soft sell the seriousness of the gospel. 
to domesticate Jesus such that we're able to continue to identify with the Christian community, but not so radically that we risk endangering ourselves in the public square. We don't want to be put out there so that we're in a dangerous place or our status or our position within the community might be compromised by our convictions. We want to hold just enough to Jesus to get all of the benefits of the gospel without any of the risk or dangers that can tend to come with that. And the preacher is saying here, he's not changing. The gospel is not changing. Christ is not changing. Our obligations under the gospel are not changing. The same could be said of the 21st century context. What we seek is a more domesticated version of Jesus that provides for us the gifts of eternal life and a source for comfort in dark days without any of the implications or obligations that come along with the message of the gospel. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I've said this to you before, but I think it's worth mentioning again here One of the things that's been a shift, a change for me in ministry and moving from a more rural area to here in the Memphis metro area is that virtually every sin that I seek to warn you against, to call upon you to repent of and to turn away from turning to Jesus, you can find some congregation operating under the guise of the gospel that will celebrate and exhort you in the very sin the message of the Bible calls you away from. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed, and he will not change in order to accommodate our discomforts in the world. Look to verse number nine. One of the things I appreciate about this passage is the way it puts its finger on our every nerve, and it's following along with our tendencies. Look at verse nine. I'll show you what I mean. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be established by grace and not by foods, since those involved in them have not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. In the first century context, you you have in this Hebrew congregation those who have reverted back to the practice of the food laws of the Old Testament. These would not be popular in a Baptist setting. No catfish, no shrimp, no crawfish, no bacon, no pork chops. Like this would never fly in a Southern Baptist setting, right? But in this first century setting where you have people coming from a culture where that was the cultural and to some extent religious observation, there was the tendency to revert back to that. Do you realize why? Think again, there's pressure, there's, there's stress, there's the strain of potential persecution. And now there's the want to go back to these old ways that provided us some outlet for religious expression apart from the dangerous duty to which Christ had called us to. In the language of Hebrews 13, he's called us to go outside the camp, but it's scary out there. So we begin to invent ways to express ourselves, our religious zeal or fervor fervor inside the camp. We do this in our setting. I see this in the Sunday school format observed in Baptist churches all over America. We all huddle up, we study a passage, and then we demonstrate our skill, our acumen, our knowledge of the information contained in the Bible. 
And then we maintain this uncanny ability to leave completely detached from anything that has been discussed within that setting. I'm not suggesting that that is the universal experience, but I am suggesting to you that that is an experience that is far too common. We even evaluate a person's zealousness on the basis of how much they know about the Bible, even while disregarding how little they observe or honor what is clearly commanded in the Bible. And we do it, in my estimation, to soothe our guilty consciences at our failure so often to do what is so clearly required of us in the Scripture. We invent strange regulations and strange metrics by which to evaluate ourselves because it's easier to express ourselves that way inside the camp than to risk life and limb outside the camp where Jesus has clearly called us. The message of verses 9 and 10 is to resist the urge to turn inward as a community. When it gets hard, our tendency is to look to other ways, strange ways, to practice our faith. When Christ has consistently called us to go outside the gate. Look at verse, well, we skipped verse 10. Verse 9 is making reference to those food laws and then building on that example. Verse 10 says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. He's playing on the language of the altar, the sacrificial system, and the food laws. Jesus has provided us a better altar. Because of what Jesus has afforded us, we needn't revert back to those old ways or to strange practices as outlets for our religious fervor. We ought to come and sit and dine richly on the feast that has been afforded us in Jesus. A feast that those who observe food laws and other strange practices have no access or right to eat. This is another clever way of the preacher saying Jesus is better than the religious fervor that's at work within your camp, within the sanctuary, within the tent, within the city. Go out there where it's dark and difficult and dangerous. That's where Jesus is at work. Verse 11 says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. He's referring here to the Levitical practice of taking the body of those blood sacrifice animals and burning them outside the camp. Playing on that example in verse 12, he points to Jesus. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Jesus died on the cross, was crucified outside the walls of ancient Jerusalem, outside the gate, outside the city. It was there that Jesus bled. He shed his blood in order that we might be sanctified, in order that we might be saved by the power of his blood shed for us. Jesus suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Here's the charge in verse 13. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. The tendency is to huddle up, to segregate ourselves as Christian folk, right? To insulate ourselves against the world around us because it's dangerous out there. There's darkness and there's difficulty and there's heartache and there's hardship out there. It's dangerous in the world. 
But Christ is calling us to go outside the gate, outside the camp, to imperil our lives, to see him glorified in the kingdom advanced. This language of going outside the city or outside the gate doesn't resonate so well in a 21st century context, but it was clearly understood in the first. If you were a leper in the ancient Near East, not only would you suffer the social ostracization of being put outside the camp, you would be separated from your family and your friends in the city. You would also suffer the placement of being outside the camp. That was among the more dangerous parts of being a leper. You would literally be put outside of the city walls, outside of the gate, which meant that your safety and your security had been compromised. You could be the victim of robbers. You could even be the victim of a neighboring city-state's army waiting to pounce at the slightest glimpse of weakness in that particular city. It was dangerous to be outside the city. It was dangerous to be outside the gate. It was dangerous to be outside the camp, a culture in some ways less civilized than what we enjoy with contemporary standards for security and safety. If you've ever watched National Geographic, you've watched this unfold, right? You have the gazelles or whatever plains animal on the plains, and they're there, and they're all in a herd, and you're all good in the herd, right? But eventually one begins to wander from the pack, wander from the herd, and especially if he gets somewhat distance, distant, he immediately becomes the target of some predator who's watching over that particular group of animals. City walls function in something of the same way, to be outside of the gate, to be outside of the camp, to be outside of the city was to be exposed to all manner of danger and difficulty and hardship and the attacks of enemy, aggressive enemies about the city. What Jesus is calling us to do is to forsake the security and the safety of the city, the camp, what lies behind the gate, and to go outside into dark and difficult and dangerous places for his glory and the advancement of the kingdom. And what this is predicated on is the assumption that we understand full well that we can go out there because Jesus is enough for us. No matter what happens out there, our lives are not our own. This is reinforced in verse 14. For we don't have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. If you're, if you're trying to build a city for yourself, if you're trying to build a kingdom for yourself, I could add to that if you're trying to build a church for yourself. We don't have an enduring city here. We await a city that is to come. And for that reason, we're able, and I hope with glad hearts willing, to risk life and limb to see Jesus praised among the nations and the kingdom of Christ advanced to the very ends of the earth. We have no place of safety here. We have no home here. We have no enduring city. We are awaiting a city that is to come. We're back to that theme from chapters ago of the seen warring against the unseen. What we see with our eyes and our natural want for safety and security versus the, the promises of an unseen God calling us away from the safety and security, often alluring us about those visible things around us. Trust him, trust him, trust him. Suffer after the example of Jesus is, is the theme here of these verses, but there's a bit more in this particular section. Look to verse number 16, rather verse 15. 
Therefore, through him, therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise, and he continues on. Let, it, let us offer up through Jesus. Here, here's what I want to be careful that I never do in talking about suffering, whether it's the suffering that's an inevitable part of life or it's the suffering, as in the case of Hebrews chapter 13, that's generated by the presence of persecution and the threat of even martyrdom. I never want, I never want to short sail that or to marginalize the difficulty of that. It's just hard to suffer. And sometimes what can seem like minimal suffering to others can be really heavy in our heart, right? That's the challenge of expressing our, our pain and our grief. It might look like from the outside in, it's not a major deal, but Satan has an incredible way of touching our most exposed nerves. Always think about that example in Job chapter one. We looked at that passage back at Father's Day, I think. In, in, that, in that passage, Job, Job is said to have been concerned for the well-being of his children, under certain circumstances. And it's always stood out to me how it was under those circumstances that they died. He was afraid in that setting something would happen that would compromise their standing with God and they were doing that thing when Satan attacked them. And how often it unfolds that way in our lives, things that may seem from the outside in, in to be insignificant when in reality they are weighing down our hearts in the heaviest of ways. Hebrews never minimizes the weight of our suffering. People say stupid things like, God never gives you more than you can handle. Where, where does the Bible say that? I'll, I'll give you a hint. The Bible does not say that. In fact, the Bible consistently says God always gives us more than we can handle. The only way that you can manage in this life is through the strength of his sufficient grace for us. It's through him. Therefore, let us through him. Therefore, through him, let us continue to offer the sacrifice of praise, the worship of his name, acts of service to those around us. It is that Christ is there holding us up, sustaining us, even in the midst of great, great suffering. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Persevere through Jesus. Openly profess his name. Praise his name. Do good to others, even when others do not do good to you. Now look at verse 17. This is one of those verses for pastors that can be really difficult to preach because it always comes off as really self-serving. So be patient here, right? Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. A couple of things. This passage anticipates that you trust your leaders which begins by appointing trustworthy leaders. I see church squabbles and church disputes and have often been called upon to mediate and help and provide counsel and assistance. And I've seen my fair share of church disputes that were born out of contentious congregations. But I have seen far, far too many, and my pastor friends don't like for me to say this, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I have seen far too many of them 
that were frankly the product of bad leadership, boneheaded leadership, decisions that were clearly made out of step with the work of God's Holy Spirit. I'm not suggesting to you that there aren't those examples of contentions and difficulties being born out of contentious congregations. Yes, yes, and amen, that can be a reality. But woe unto those God has given this unique charge. When they discharge the obligations, the responsibilities God has given to them in a less than trustworthy manner. This all begins by appointing trustworthy people. And they're, they're, I, think, I think in our minds, we're still in this era where you could just trust what someone said concerning a pastor or a leader. But that, that era, if it ever existed, has long since passed by. And, and, and I, don't, I don't see many churches, I don't see the church in general, Big C Church, being cautious and as careful as she ought to be when it comes to appointing leaders. I've been sitting in ordination councils for pastors for now 15 years, and I'm the only person I know who has ever voted against the ordination of a candidate in an ordination council, and I've done it a bunch of times, more times than perhaps you'd be comfortable with knowing. It is imperative that we understand the full weight of God's qualifications for the office of pastor or leader. And it is imperative that those qualifications be observed in the church if we're to expect there be any degree of trust credited to the pastor given charge over the people of God in that context. Called upon to trust them, which starts by appointing trustworthy leaders. But notice what's being described in verse number 17. Trusted leadership, which is trustworthy leadership, always adds up to glad-hearted leadership. Read again verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. When trusted leadership is trustworthy leadership, the product of that is glad-hearted leadership in which everyone wins. When the, when the church trusts the pastor and the pastor is trustworthy, it's, it's a win-win for everybody involved. It's a no-lose situation. And the body can really control the spirit with which a pastor goes about his work in ministry. For about a decade, there were, there were two ladies in my life and in my ministry. I'm going to tell you about them, and I'm not going to tell you who they are. And you could waterboard me, and I still wouldn't tell you who they are. So don't ask when we're done. But I, had, I had on the one hand the sweet lady. Her needs probably in reality exceeded most in our church. She prayed for me and she loved me to this day. She has probably prayed as much or more for me as anyone in this world. And she would consistently say, Pastor, I don't need anything. I don't need anything. I don't need anything. Don't trouble with me. If I only saw her on Sunday morning as we came and went from worship services, that would have been all right by her. And then I had this other sister. She was a little prickly and brash. And she would say, she would say, I want to see you every week. And if I missed, she would send a message that she was looking for me. What I, what I found is that I would, I would dread those meetings. 
I would, I would, sometimes you just do it to get it out of the way. Now, here's what, here's what I'll say. If you want me to see you on a weekly basis as a member of our church, I will do it because I'm your pastor and I love you and I want to meet your expectations. But I can make no commitments whatsoever about the spirit in which I'll make those visits, right? <laughs> and you just begin to dread that experience. On the other hand, this sister is concerned not with whether she sees me or not. And I found myself looking for moments, for hours that I can steal from other obligations to be able to spend with this sweet sister who, who I go to minister to, but in reality, she ministers to me. You, you see how that relationship, that connection that can exist between a pastor and his people can so fuel his spirit. It made me want to minister when I didn't have time or energy to minister. I wanted to go and shepherd this precious soul. And oh boy, even when I needed to be there with the other sister, sometimes it could be difficult. This is, this is not about putting pastors on, on, a, on a level that's above the laity. I think that's wrong-headed. And I think, I think that in itself has created a problem for decades and for generations in the American church. This is about the kind of harmony that ought to exist between the pastor and the sheep that God has given him charge to care for and to provide for. It's not just submitting to your leaders that the Bible is calling us to here in verse 17. In verses 18 and 19, the focus is on praying for your leaders. Look to verse 18. The preacher says, pray for us. For we're convinced that we have a clear conscience wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. And I especially urge you to pray that I may be restored to you very soon. Pray that we would be righteous, that we would be holy. Right now we know our conscience to be clean, but pray that God would keep us there and sanctify and reveal even secret sin to us. And then he prays in verse 18 to request prayer for a specific need, namely that I be restored to you very soon. Brothers and sisters, pray for the holiness of your pastors. A lot of times the, the focus of prayer for pastors is directed at ministry outcomes. God used them to preach well. God used them to minister well. God used them to lead mission teams. And God lead them to build connect group ministry. And God used them that people would be saved and come to faith in Christ. And used them so that the church would grow spiritually and numerically. But I got to tell you in my personal life, when I'm abiding in Jesus, and Jesus is abiding in me, when, when my priority is to seek his kingdom and his righteousness, all of these other things, these ministry outcomes have a way of finding their place. In a, in a day of crooked and perverse ministries, pray for the holiness of your pastors, those God's given charge over your care. Specific need in verse number 19, I especially urge you to pray that I may be restored to you very soon. I hope that there's enough proximity between you and those that God has given care for your soul, that you're aware of their particular needs, their unique needs, and that you're going to God on behalf of them, imploring, pleading that God would be at work on their behalf. I want to say again, I say again, I think I've said this before in this morning's, uh, in this sermon, that gets confusing, you understand, after three sermons. I want, I, want, I want to say to you, if, if I haven't already 
if you'll give me long enough, I'll disappoint you. And all of your pastors will. All of your pastors will. There are times when it's, it's weakness that leads me to failure. I, you know, I had a situation months ago where I just, you know, I just missed a request to do ministry in a difficult, difficult time for, for a family, and it just broke their heart, and the fault was on me. That's just weakness. There are times when it's just, I don't know enough, or I'm not aware, or I'm not operating at a high enough level to be able to meet every need. I'll disappoint you, and it was heartbreaking for that family. And th then, there, then there are times when, in reality, if I was a better manager of time, Maybe if I were more efficient in some area of my life, I would be able to measure up or meet certain expectations, maybe reasonable or valid expectations for me. I'm just weak. I'm just weak and frail. And all of your pastors, no matter where you go, but all of your pastors here, I know personally to be weak and frail. And if you fix your faith on us, it won't take us long to let you down in some pretty incredible ways. You know, we don't like to say that. We really don't. But you really ought to know that. I was talking with a friend after the second service in the back, and he, he said to me, I wish I had heard that sermon when I was 14 or 15 years old. And, and he began to talk about some ways that he had observed as a teenager the failures of pastor after pastor after pastor from adultery to murder, the failure after failure of pastor after pastor, and how it beset him in his faith, and how he spent decades apart from the fellowship of the church. I want to warn you, listen close. Do not put your faith in pastors. Don't put your faith in churches. Don't put your faith in people at all. But I would invite you this morning that if you'll put your faith and trust in Jesus, he will never let you down. There, there, there are days when I want to do things in ministry. I want to be able to be there. I've been here for two and a half years now, and I'm still in my spirit at night. I'm wrestling with the reality that I'm no longer able to do everything that is done in, in our ministry. Others are a part and doing things that I can't do everything the way I want to do it. I just don't have the time and I don't have the energy. But when I'm sleeping, he's wide awake at work in the most powerful ways in your lives, ministering to you in ways that far exceed my ability. When I see you hurt in ways or there's a need that surpasses my power to do anything about or to meet in any real meaningful way, He's the God of all power, omnipotent and omnipresent, able to meet the greatest need in the most remarkable of ways, ways that far exceed the ministry of any pastor here or elsewhere. If you'll trust Jesus, you'll never be disappointed. Th this morning, the invitation of this passage, as has been the case with so many, is to repent of your sin to believe on the message of the gospel for the salvation of your soul. Believe on Jesus. Turn away from the things of this world and unto Jesus. Unto a Savior who never disappoints. Who always does what is right. Who's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. For these moments to consider this passage. A passage that for the past days has been sweet to me, God. How cleverly you have 
diagnosed our tendencies, our sinful ways, how we tend to turn inward when things get hard, how we seek other illegitimate outlets for religious zeal when it's difficult to do what you have called upon us to do. Help us prayerfully to reckon with that reality in these next moments. All of us are guilty of that. God, I pray that you would continue to foster and and grow a spirit of harmony and togetherness, a glad-hearted spirit between the leadership of our church and and the body, the membership of our church. Help us to understand that we have locked arms together. May we ever march forward for the advancement of your kingdom and your kingdom alone. Help us to resist turning inward. Help us to be mindful of the steadfastness of Jesus. He is ever unchanging. Help us to rest in your ultimate lordship over the body. We thank you for these things and and so many other ways that you have provided and ministered to our spirit this morning. We ask it in Christ's name.